This is the Team Performance Podcast, where we explore issues at the heart of leadership, team development, and organizational culture. I'm your host, Mark Gilroy, and in this episode, we're joined by Phil Wilcox, the founder of Specialist Consultancy, Emotion at Work. As part of his work, Phil helps businesses tackle emotion, deception, identity, and credibility, and we touch on all of these areas in this episode. He shares some practical tips designed to take the guesswork out of emotionally charged situations, as well as a number of brilliant techniques for leaders to follow in order to get the best from their teams. Welcome to the latest episode in our series of interviews. I'm really happy to be joined by Phil Wilcox today. So Phil is an expert in all things emotion he's got a master's degree in emotion credibility and deception and for over 20 years he's been running his own consulting practice called unsurprisingly emotion at work thanks for joining us phil oh thank you so much for having me on really 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 grateful to be here so i think maybe a good place to start is with your leadership journey now i've heard you tell this story a few times about you know i know prior to running your consulting practice you've been an employee you've been led and you've also been in leadership roles but mm. can you say a little bit about your first experiences of of leadership whether positive or negative so now you've got me wondering which story it is that uh, you're referring to because there's a few um so i think so if i think about my kind of leadership for me as an individual um so the first experience of that for me was when uh, i got promoted to being a training team leader um and I mean, it was a bit annoying because it was back in the day where um, well, maybe this still happens nowadays, actually. But it was one of those things where, you know, when somebody promotes you and then they call it a development opportunity. So you do the job, but don't get paid for it. It was one of those. That was a little bit annoying. Mm. Um, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, yeah, so I was uh, I was asked to or I, I applied for and, and got promoted into this role of a training team leader. And when I got when I got that promotion, um, a member, uh, the, one of my colleagues, one of my peers, the other, one of the other training team leaders said, right, you've got to be different now, Phil. You're you're a leader now, you're a manager now. So there has to be this this professional gap between you and the rest of your team. You can't, can, you can't carry on going to the pub with them at lunchtime. You can't socialize with them in the evenings. You've got to be different now. There's got to be this, this distance, this gap. And I was like, oh, wow, really? Like, that sounds a bit like don't know I'm not sure I'm not sure I buy that but I've never been a leader before I've never been a manager before so if that's what you're telling me it is then that's what I'll do um so that's what I did and oh it was exhausting it was absolutely exhausting um there was a like an archway that I would walk through on the way into the office and I felt like I went through a metamorphosis as I walked through it you know is that that kind of you know if mm. you likened it to I know both you and I are a Marvel fan so you've got that bit in um uh, in Infinity War, where Tony Stark kind of double taps his chest, and then this Iron Man suit kind of like encompasses him. So uh, that was what it felt like in a way when I'd walk through this archway. It felt like I would go through this change as I walked in, because I had to be different to what to how I would be kind of outside of work. And then about six months later, um, a member of my team was having a celebration. It was, it was at their house for like a barbecue, um, and there were a few beers in. Uh, and they said to me, you know what, when you got promoted, we were so happy. Finally, someone who gets it, somebody who understands what it's like to, to do the role that we're doing, who can make change and influence what's, you know, what's happening and make our lives easier. And then you've got your head stuck so far up your own ass. I just don't know how you see what's going on every day. And I was like, what? They said, yeah, you're just a bit of a dick. 
never been a, described in that way in my life. Like, what's going on? She said, well, you're just not who you're not who you, who you used to be. Um, and, it, and it just I, I, I then just sat outside kind of flabbergasted for the next I don't know how long. Um, and then I made a decision the following Monday that I would come back in and, and just be me and, and kind of do it, try and do it my way. Because in over that six months, I used to fall asleep on the bus on the way home because at the end of each day, I was so tired and I didn't know it then. And, and you know, knowing what I know now, it's because I was putting on a front. I was putting on a, a you know, I was putting on a front and pretending to, to be something or someone that I wasn't for what, seven, eight hours at a time, because instinctively my gut would say, deal with this situation in this way because that's what Phil would do and then it was like oh no yeah but you can't do that remember it got to be different now so um yeah I need to be Phil mm -hmm. the manager and and then I kind of be in a different way so um so my own I guess first personal experience of leadership was was one of um yeah tiring exhausting to begin with and and then once I'd been told to take my head out my own ass then it got a lot better um, for me and for the team. I think it'd probably be fair to say. Yeah, it's weird that, isn't it? I, I've, I speak to a lot of people who 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 have been through that same um, completely fake metamorphosis, and and it's almost mm. been pushed at them of um, of growing up with a group of people and growing into a role with a group of people who are who are your immediate kind of work family and support network. And then having to sort of make a decision, which is about cutting all of that off. And then people complain about leadership being lonely when, yeah. when there really isn't any opportunity to, to connect with people on any kind of human personal level. It's, um, it's really unfair and, and not really a great idea for anyone to do, but I, I, I can sympathize because I've been there too. I've, I've, I've been through that process of, of trying to have a, a bit of an identity crisis really and go, do I need to be somebody different to this group of people who I've, who I've spending, spent quite a lot of time with and they've seen me falling out of, you know, pubs at 3am as well as, you know, in a professional setting as well. How, how does that reconcile itself? It's, it's really, it's a really difficult thing to, to try and because you can't reverse it you can't unsee it you can't unlive those experiences so mm. having to kind of cut people off in that way of course it's going to feel really really weird for them i'm interested to know what 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 was the thing that happened so when you put on your iron man suit and and you walked into that space and behaved intentionally differently what sort of things were you doing differently uh so i was more distant so i i uh, i would mm. um I would ask less questions about kind of how people are and what was going on for them and what was happening with them. So I was, I'd put myself, um, yeah, in, in more distanced in that way. Um, though I, I wouldn't engage in, um, I wouldn't engage in kind of the, the bantery stuff that might happen in the team. Or if there was like a conversation mm -hmm. happening about, I don't know what was, what was on the TV or like a TV show, um, I'd be like, oh yeah, come on there, guys, let's get back to work. Um, you know, rather than letting those conversations run and, and engaging in them, um, I would, uh, I'd be a bit more kind of formal and official in things like one to ones and and and, and the first round of performance reviews that I did. Um, it would be like, oh, you know, let's let's look at your let's look at your KPIs and 
um, you know, do it in a very formal, structured way, which is just isn't me. I don't like process. I don't mm. like structure. I don't really like formality. Hence the fact I'm in a big fleecy hoodie, probably. Um, uh, and yeah. the fact I, I wear trainers everywhere I go instead of shoes. Um, and and I, yeah, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot more formality, a lot more distance, more. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, and it was lonely um, because I, I also then didn't know how to, to be with my colleagues because I was thinking, well, if my colleagues are telling me, if my mm. peers are telling me I need to be this way with my team, like how am I meant to be with, with what are now my peers? Because um, I don't want to be mm. acting in a way that's different to them. So I'd watch their behavior closely and, and think, right, how do I, how do I do what they're doing? Because if that's, if they've been leaders for however long they've been leaders then I should do what they do because that's what you're meant to do. Um, and so I'd, I'd watch, mm. you know, I'd closely watch what they were doing and some of their behaviors. And then I'd, I'd find myself using that in terms of some of the language and some of the acronyms and, um, some of the things that a, you know, that a training team leader would say and, and what they'd be interested in. And my, my lexicon as it's known, uh, which is the kind of the, the bank of words that you would pick from changed because I was, I was deliberately choosing words that weren't mine, but were arguably what was kind of credible or what was expected or desired from people in those roles. Mm. So there was a lot of cognitive effort. There was a lot of thinking going into either analyzing what others were doing or thinking carefully about what I was doing. So I was doing the right kind of behaviors. And, and if I contrast yeah. it, if I may, sorry, if I, if I, so if I contrast it with probably my, best experience of leadership which is when um i worked with a lady called alison mckiver so when i left kind of banking and went to public sector um she's the best boss i've ever had by a country mile um and um when i when i started working with her on day one she said how do you want me to lead you i was like what she said how do you want me to lead you um like today's monday i want we've got you one-to-one -one, end of end of week one review on friday uh, i want you to come back to me with how you want me to lead you and i found that week really hard because i just come from this role where that's not true I'd, i actually had another role in between but i come from this company where I'd, I'd thought about really carefully about how i needed to be and then i got somebody saying you've been you for for 30 years was it 30 years no 27 years um you know yourself better than anybody else does. So I want you to tell me how you, how you want me to lead you. And I remember I got to that Friday feeling really nervous because what I wanted to say, which I did say was I'm really needy for the first six months. I'm going to be super needy. I'm going to be asking you, have I done the right thing? Am I doing it in the right way? Um, what could I do differently? What could I do better? I won't ask you what I've done well, because at the because at that point in time I don't care what I've done well. I just want to know what I can do better and how I can improve. And if you can see me through that needy period, which is probably about six months, then I'll fly. You know, you can just leave me alone because once I get mm. it, once I understand what's needed, what's wanted, what's expected, what's appropriate, what's you know, if, once I understand what I need to do and how I need to do it in the environment I'm doing it in. Once I get that, I'll fly, you know, and, and you'll, you know, then the, the, it will almost go the opposite direction and I'll be telling you what I'm doing and I'll be coming to you for help when I need it. But otherwise I'll just pretty much be, you can leave me alone and I'll just crack on with it. Um, mm. And she was like, yeah, okay. But what does being needy look like, Phil? I was like, well, that's a different discussion. So, um, 
but I think that there's and whether you look at whatever category you want to look at it disc wise I'm disc or insights or color works I'm green um um you know if you were to look at myers Briggsy wise you know my my best fit type would be a and f p and that that f feeling preference part of the reason i I love emotion so much has been a big part of what of me and and wanting to keep people happy is one of my biggest strengths and weaknesses at the same time because sometimes i could not make a decision because i'm too busy trying to keep Mm. everyone happy and in in both of those examples with when i was told i needed to be different that kind of wanting to fit in wanting to do the right thing wanting to keep people happy wanting to get it right was what i was doing that's that's what i was doing at that point in time i was just doing it in a way that wasn't really true to who i am and then with Alison, it was complete opposite. I was able to do that in a really, in a really open way with being, you know, I guess, you know, I probably wouldn't have used the word vulnerable back then um, because, you know, Brenny Brain's work hadn't gone crazy and all of that stuff. But it being that being that vulnerable moment of saying, I'm really needy. Um, and of course, if I was reframing mm-hmm. that I'm not needy, I just want to understand the details. But yes, that was the, you know, the yeah. there's still that, that under, I guess. So when I think about me and, how I'm, I don't know, how, how I like to approach what I do and what works for me. In both those examples, my preferences or my, my desires to, where possible, fit in, keep people happy and all of those things were at play just in two very different ways and gave me two very different experiences of, of leadership around it. And I don't hold any, you know, it might come across like I, I might hold some grudge or resentment to the person that said to me, you need to be different. And not at all. I mean, Without that experience, I wouldn't have learned the lesson that I learned and and been any different. Um, and they had a they had their way of doing leadership, which was to have that distance and have that gap, and that just wasn't me, um, and and never has been ever since, really, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, it's I, I was about I was about to say that you that their their advice to you is probably just coming from their model without having any acknowledgement of what your model could be or was. Or was evolving into. I love that um, question from Alison. I think that's that's what a, what an amazing gift to give to someone, and it's so simple as well. It's it's this. It, I could imagine a cynical group of people going, "Oh, okay, they're, they're basically abdicating all, yeah, yeah, um, responsibility for for leading people because they're asking people for a, a crib sheet." But why not? Um, there's always, I think, in the same way that there's this sort of classic archetype of what good leadership looks like. Um, which is all the things that you described. It's distant and it's aloof and it's serious, and mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's about KPIs and, and metrics and, and being really distant about all of that stuff. Um, and I think in some in some industries, I can see why that archetype works and why it's emerged and why it's become so prevalent. But it's mm-hmm. a lot of trees have been shaken since then, um, and a lot of systems and models have been thrown out, um, which is a good thing. And one of them is this sort of, this principle, I think, which is, I think it's like a religious principle, but I, I certainly grew up with it. It came, it's it's a, it's a phrase that's come up again and again in my, my uh, sort of early development. I think I, I went to a religious school and it used to come out quite a bit and it's, and it, and it emerges in a few different religions um, called different things. But one of the things it's, it's become known as is something called the golden rule. Okay. Um, and again, it, it takes different forms, but in essence, it's that, it's that do unto others piece. In mm. other words, you know, you should you should treat other people the way you would want to be treated, which kind of makes sense up to a point, particularly for little ones. 
you kind yeah. of get people, little ones, to try and be empathetic and think about, well, how, how would I want to be treated? Does that sense sit, sit with me okay? But after a certain point, actually, that doesn't make any sense at all and becomes massively counterintuitive and, and possibly even um, damaging. How how dare you assume how how I would want to be treated um, based on your experience and your model of the world? Well, I guess what yeah, Alison's done there is sort of flipped that round and gone treat other people how they want to be treated and ask them about yeah. it so you can be really specific and intentional and accurate with it mm. um, and, and i think there's yeah. i mean i, I, I love that if more leaders did that yeah and it's something that i've taken to all of the roles that i've had since then still something i use most recently so when when the most recent member of our team joined a lady called lizzie um asked that question you know, still so it's, it's still something that, that i use to this day and i remember i used to run like influencing and persuasion um kind of master classes and workshops for people and i would use that that phrase in, in terms of um treat other people how they want to be treated because that's where the emphasis um that's where the emphasis for me um hmm. needs to be so i think there's a there's a risk with that question that it could come across as either being very accommodating or it could come across as though you're abdicating responsibility as you kind of mentioned earlier on but for me it's a question that allows people the those those that i work with those in my team it it means that all their only option is to perform because if so i can say to someone how do you want me to lead you and they can say i want you to do this i want you to do these five things i say all right i'll do these five things and if I do these five things and that person doesn't perform, I can go, hang on a minute, I'm really confused. When I, you know, I asked you, how do you want me to lead you? What can I do to help you be at your best? What can I help do, you know, what can I do to help you excel? You said these five things. I think these five things are in place. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. Okay. Your performance isn't where I need it to be. So help me understand that some more. I, I'm confused as to, as to, I'm giving you everything you say you want and everything you say you need, and then your performance isn't to the level that it needs to be. So what's what's amiss here? Am I doing something wrong? Are you doing something wrong? Do we need to change these five things? Is it different things? Um, so it could come mm. across as though, yeah, you're you're being super accommodating and super considerate and super, uh, you might be abdicating responsibility. And, and actually for me, it, it it gets you to a point where people excel, either because you give them the five things that they need to excel and guess what? they excel or you you get to go well actually it's not these five things then so what is it what does it what does it what do we need mm. to change and if the outcome is performance isn't where you need it to be if you were to then put your kind of hr hat on you could you've got every piece of evidence you could possibly need to support um, underperformance or capability type processes or procedures that you could go with it so i said for me it's not like a soft and fluffy thing it's a it's a hard and specific thing because either someone excels mm. or you have lots of evidence to say of all the things that you've put in place to help this person perform and they haven't been able to do so and therefore you can talk about it from a capability perspective so there's i i'm you know i'm doing ends of a spectrum which might be a bit harsh because of course there's going to be areas in the middle um but it for me it makes that those conversations so much easier it gives us a really easy transparent and clear way into a conversation to say told me it was these five things these five things are in place it's not where we need it to be what do we need to do about that then yeah and on the on the flip side of that as well talking from the team member the employee's voice you've got that sense of accountability on the leader's behalf of saying there's there's a kind of agreement of sorts of this is this is these are the things that you can do that will feed and water me and help grow and nurture our relationship 
you haven't done some of those and absolutely look at what's happened as a result yep. can we talk about how we can change that and it's it's um it makes it a much more I, I like you're right it's a much more specific way of talking about issues that can sometimes become a bit abstract and a bit muddy and mm. interwoven with a lot of emotional and personal stuff yeah and, and I, I guess it I, I probably maybe I take it too far I mean I'd, in, you know, I'd, I'd have to ask my team but they haven't told me that I don't so uh, so I, I took Alison's question and I, I added on a few more as well so uh, on day one <laughs> then the question is um, how do you want me to lead you the other questions that get asked are how how do you want me to tell you when you piss me off and how do you want me to tell you when you let me down and similarly um i want to talk about how i want to know from i want to be able to share with you how you tell me when i piss you off and i want to explore how you tell me when i let you down because it's going to happen yeah we, we're going to work together and I will let you down. I'll do something. I'll make, I'll get, I'll make a mistake. I'll get something wrong. I won't deliver on a commitment. Whatever it will be, I can guarantee you I'll let you down. I can also guarantee you that I'm going to piss you off. And what I'd love to do is agree now on day one or week one how we do with that. How do we deal with, you know, Mark's pissed me off. How do I deal with Phil's let Mark down? Let's, let's agree the process for how we mm. do that really early in our relationship so that it, it doesn't leave any ambiguity or any uncertainty or I mean it won't get rid of the emotion completely but it will make it more manageable for both parties if we've if we both agree the protocol for when that happens so when performance isn't up to standard mm. I can say right Mark remember when we talked about it you said if your performance wasn't up to standard you wanted me to do it in this way so this is me doing it in that way mm. and then off we go yeah that's great and how do how do people I guess without breaking any confidences here, how how do people tend to react to those questions on day on day one? I'm trying. I'm, th I'm thinking in my head about how I would have reacted if anybody on on my first day of of starting a job had asked me something as big as that with with those kind of words, with quite emotionally loaded words, mm -hmm. rather than the sort of safe versions of those words. Yeah, yeah. How how does that tend to go down? Um. So giving taking Alison's inspiration and giving people time to think about it before they come back is, I think, it makes a big difference. So mm. to ask the question outright with the expectation of an answer quickly, I think would make it much more difficult. So the fact that I say, here are the questions that I want you to think about and you've got five days to think about it. Well, yeah, or a week. It depends on whether they're full-time or part-time. So if it was somebody doing like a day a week, then I might give them two weeks to think about it rather than someone who maybe is working full-time. I'll give them, say, the, you know, if day one is the Monday, day, day five is the Friday. But I think having that time in between um, is important. So I'm not answering your question yet, but I will in a minute. And then the second thing I do is make the intentionality behind the questions really clear. So... So part of what mm. part of the framing of those questions is to say um, or is saying that we're going to work closely together, um, especially in, in the current kind of guys. It's a fairly small team. So I want our relationship to be strong. Um, I want our communication to be clear and things that can get in the way of that would be assumptions or um uh, where you haven't, where you're not sure, and you're having to guess in terms of the way that something happens, or way that we go about doing something. 
And so what I've deliberately done is taken probably the most emotionally charged situations that we could that we could get into. I've let you down, you've let me down, I've pissed you off, you've pissed me off, you're not performing, mm. I'm not performing. Um and I want us to make those as, as safe and as um as safe as possible. I want us to feel as optimistic as we can about having that conversation when we get there and I want us to feel confident about going into that conversation um so how do I help how, how do we get there I think is by agreeing the process for these in advance that that gives us both um safety because we've put the boundaries around how this conversation can run it gives us both optimisticness to say when it happens I know what if I'm not if I'm not performing or if I've let Phil down I know how he's going to go about doing it and it gives both of us the confidence to go, we know this is going to be difficult and we've got the way that, that we've agreed to do it. So in my experience, people have engaged with it in, in a constructive way. What I think is interesting to notice, though, and, I, and I'm, I'm almost prepared and, and willing for this to happen, is that I get a little bit of politeness in, the, in week one or in the first time I ask the question. So periodically... Every, I don't know, I, I couldn't say, it's probably roughly every three months. I'll, it's in somebody's one-to-one, -one, I'll be saying, right, you know, we these are the things that we agreed beforehand. Have any of these things changed? Um, is something different now? Has something changed or shifted now? And if that's the case, then we'll amend the processes accordingly. So it's not like, a, I guess I don't treat it as a one and done. It's a, yes, let's find out what people think. And then mm. you know, we can we can change or evolve it over time because it might be that, you know, where somebody says, you know, I just want you to, to straight away, as soon as possible, I want you to call me and tell me um, so we can discuss it. And then when it happens, they go, oh, I didn't like that. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. So let's change it then. How, you know, how, how do we do it? How do we change the process if, if that didn't work for you? Um, or actually, no, I think it would be different now. Now I'd rather you sort of send me your voice note on WhatsApp first, outline what's happened why it hasn't met your expectations or why you think it's let you down or what about it's pissed you off. Be specific for me. Um, and then let me kind of sit on that for, for, for a, for a while. And if you haven't heard from me within 24 hours, then can you ring me so we can have a conversation about it or, you know, so that way, yeah, things can change or, or evolve. Mm. If that's what people would like. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it's making me think about, um, kind of buzzword. We have buzzword bingo alert here, by the way. Um, yep. Uh, psychological safety and and all of the things that come along with that and yeah I put together an article the other week about the dangers of psychological safety and how mm -hmm. um, on, on one hand it can be a really it can be a really positive thing to have that level of transparency and vulnerability within a team environment but actually taken to extremes um, it can also create space for people to hide um, mm. some of the stuff we've been talking about, like poor performance. Um, yeah. if, if psychological safety is taken to the nth level and actually people are, are made to feel so safe that they almost can't discuss some of the stuff for fear of upsetting somebody or, or pissing them off yeah, or letting them down. Um, yeah. how, how does that about, how, how do you think about that sort of equilibrium and the balance that goes along with, with something like psychological safety. Um, so it, it, I think it's, um, so I, I agree with you and I'm going to make a, a different comparison. I think it's, so I have, 
I have similar challenges with the notion of authenticity. So in, in principle, I, I, you know, I, I support it wholeheartedly and, and I had, you know, I've had a really good example and experience from my past where I was being inauthentic. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I'm in a place of privilege. So I'm, I'm a straight middle-aged white man. So in terms of me needing to, I don't know, moderate or, or, or adapt some of my inherent characteristics, I'm in a place of privilege where I, I don't, I don't tend to need to do that. And actually my ability to get away with wearing a pair of trainers for every piece of work that I do, whether I'm in a, you know, in a big, big office in Canary Wharf or whether I'm on a construction site in Cumbria, um, it could be that because of my characteristics that allows me some privilege. So I, I, I not, I, I, I guess I want to reference that and, and ex explicitly acknowledge that I'm, I'm aware of the privileges that I have and I hold, um, and I think authenticity taken to its extreme it wouldn't work in the workplace, you know, because the extent of that would be everything that I think and feel I would express without filter. If I was being truly authentic, if I was being truly authentic to myself and what I think and what I believe and what I stand for, then I would say what I think and feel without filter. And, and that could be that has the potential to be incredibly destructive in the workplace, I think. Partly because some people might hold so socially unacceptable um, and or even legally unacceptable views, beliefs and perspectives. And so if those are shared openly without, um, you know, without censor in the workplace, then there could be huge ramifications that, that would come from that. And I think psychological safety has has a similar risk that goes along with it in terms of how, how it's done. Mm. Now, I would argue that psychological safety is being able to say you're not performing in a constructive way um and that's a sign of it you know can can we can we constructively discuss contentious issues for example performance in our team if we can then for me that's an example of where that psychological safety is in place if we can't because of fear of upsetting people then that you know it might be psychologically um comfortable but is it safe and that might be you know i'm probably getting into semantics yeah. here um, but that safety comes from knowing that that we can can we can have a constructive conversation about contentious potentially contentious topics yeah i get that and i and i and i share those thoughts around authenticity as well i think it's been that's another bit of a hr buzzword there um mm. in our bingo game and a leadership buzzword i think um know, the See, that's making me think about a Christopher Nolan film that came out um, a little while ago now called Interstellar, which was kind of all about kind of quantum theory and, and, and space travel and time travel as well. Mm. And in that film, there was a character played by a robot and the robot had a honesty setting on it. Oh, and really? At one point, I think they, they try and dial it up to 100% and the, the robot's like, are you sure about this? Because not many people can handle 100% honesty all of the time. Um, and and I think, and, and sure enough, they couldn't actually. It was it was, it was very bleak and it was um, very distressing for them to get the news that the robot gave them in the film. No spoilers. But I think the same is true with authenticity. I think it's one of these kind of qualities that's very often um, put on paper as stuff that organisations want from everybody, not just leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, it's not really true in practice. No, nobody wants one hundred percent authenticity. 
in terms of defining it as complete alignment with values and behaviors and thoughts and words um all of the time without a filter because it's um it would be it wouldn't be sustainable from a sociability perspective no one could handle that i don't think there's also the question of which self um when people talk about bringing your authentic self to work it's that you know that we all have like you were suggesting earlier on we all we all come with various different mm. models and suits that we wear and each of those can be authentic in their own way but we're never really that specific about which version of those different selves we bring to our our practice and our work at any different point some of them may be less acceptable than others no exactly um and the and the so I'm mildly obsessed with um, with authenticity, with identity, and with credibility. And, and I think I think it was on the first episode of this podcast you mentioned to I can't remember who your guest was. Um, I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, my my line of um, your credibility is never exclusively yours to own. You know, some of it is is always on loan to other people. Um, and, and there's that you know as often there's a venn diagram and and for me there's there's those three elements of identity authenticity and credibility can overlap um um uh, to create something where where what's what somebody is seeing could be credible and it could be authentic and it could be in line with the version of you so the identity that you're choosing to to take at that particular point mm. in time but they may maybe other other times where you could be credible and it could be in line with the in line with the identity that you want to take, but you could be it could be completely inauthentic. Um and and that and again, some might say, Well what what is that inauthenticity? Well it could be that I, I've got something happening at home with my family and I am distraught about that. But I don't want any of you to know because it's none of your business, thanks very much. So I'm going to do something that is credible and I'm going to do something that's in line with my identity at that point in time. I'm, I'm imagining it's in the workplace. So I might turn up to a coaching session with a client with a load of stuff going on at home. I don't want any, I don't want my clients to know any of that because it's none of their business. So when they ask me how I am, I say, I'm fine. Thanks. Um, and then I, I, I am the coach and I coach really well and I do all of those things. And I'm credible as the coach. Um, and arguably I'm being incredibly inauthentic because I'm keeping those bits over there. And I think that's okay. Um, because mm. it's a, you know, I, I say often that context is everything. You know, they, what's the environment that we're in, who we're with, what we're trying to do, all of those things um, are absolutely vital to the the version of me I want to bring, what's credible in that moment and the extent to which I, I want to be authentic. Um I can't, I can't control my credibility, um, not exclusive anyway, cause it's not, it's not wholly mine to own. Um, I have, I have some control over who, wh which version of me I bring. I say I have some control because the environments that we're in can place identities onto people. So, um, mm. you know, by, by being in a particular situation that it could place an identity or an expectation on you to behave in a particular way even if you don't want it, even if you're not bringing it. And then the authenticity, well, that's all of your control. You know, there's, and it's okay to have all a hundred percent of it or 0% of it, depending on the environment that you're in and the context that you're in. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a point I want to make beyond, um, for me as a, as a leader, thinking about whether it be across those three different dimensions or whether it be, um, you, know, you think about a different model if you want, but it's, it's being, I think, intentional with it. Um, I talk about with my team a lot, I talk about doing things deliberately and on purpose. So if we're going to do stuff, I don't want to do it by accident. If we're going to do it, I want us to do it deliberately and I want to do it on purpose. Because um, if we know, if we are doing it deliberately and we're doing it on purpose, we've considered all of those things before we've entered into whatever it is that we're, that we're trying to do. We're not doing something, yeah, we're not doing something accidentally. We're doing it deliberately and on purpose. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love the idea of that Venn diagram, the three-way Venn diagram. I think it's a really useful thing for people who work um in leadership development to hold in their heads when they're dealing with identity stuff because often coaching work is deep at its essence it's identity work people mm. really struggling with um either re redefining their identity shaping a new one just living with their existing ones um and and actually sometimes that sense of things aren't quite right things don't that feel aligned is again quite nebulous and quite abstract for people to try and get a hold of whereas actually having that three-way overlap in mind in mind could probably help clarify for people a lot of feelings around what isn't sitting right at the moment i could i could yeah. definitely see see that would be of real help and benefit for people thanks for sharing that so part. oh you're welcome I, I, it was interesting i had just recently um with one of my coaching clients we were talking about uh, situation that he's in I was asking him to describe um we're talking about what's happening with his team and I was asking him to describe typical situations for me and he described a team meeting where uh, he'll he'll dedicate the first five to seven minutes in terms of uh, allowing people to kind of connect and see what they've been up to and those things and I was like interesting that you've defined it in a time way but a time bound around it so I'm interested by that um so I said, well, tell me about the, you know, we moved off different topics and we came back to that one and oh, I brought him back to that one. So tell me a bit more about the way we begin a meeting. And he, he went into a bit more detail. I said, okay, so what, why do you do that? Like, what's your, in, what's, what's your intent behind that? He said, well, people like it. Okay. So is the, is the information that comes out from that discussion important to you? No. Do you care about it at all? No. I just, people have told me that I've got to do it because it's an important thing to do, but I don't really care. I don't care what people did at the weekend. I don't really care what people are up to um, outside of work. I just want them to come in and get a good, you know, do their work, do it well, do a good job, you know, deliver the outcomes that I need them to deliver and go home again. But I do it because I know it needs to be done. And if I don't do it, then that kind of, that disengages the team because they feel like I'm cold and distant and, uh, and uncaring. And I'm all of those things. I was like, well, that's a good degree of self-awareness there. <laughs> um, and, but it, I think it's a good example where if, if, if by being inauthentic, he's being considerate of other people. So his authentic self would, would want to immediately dive into the detail, dive into the specifics, dive into the work packages and work tasks for that week. Um, and 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 I find it yeah I find it fascinating that in his choice of uh, behaviour, he's being inauthentic and being considerate of others at the same time. 
Yeah. I wonder if they know. I wonder if the rest of them know. I'm thinking about the feedback you had at the pub that time. I wonder if they know that he's just going through the motions for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact he puts a time band on, it probably does, because he might get to seven minutes and he starts twitching and, um, you know, trying to move the conversation on. Um, (laughs) But that was, you know, that was what I discussed with him. You know, what happens if it goes past seven minutes? I don't really like it. Okay, what do you do with that then? Yeah. I try and wrap it up. Okay. Well, what if you did give it a bit of structure? What if you did say, we've got a lot of things to cover in this meeting, so therefore I've allocated somewhere between five and ten minutes for us to have the opening check-in because they're important. So I said, instead of it being like there's something that you're doing in a hidden way, let's do it with a bit more deliberateness, a bit more on purpose, um, and, and, and see where we go, which I know isn't coaching because technically I'm telling him what to do. Well, I'm giving him a different perspective on it. But yeah, it was still a useful thing, I think, for him. Yeah, it's making it's reminding me of um, a client I used to work with who was within like the defense industry, and I would describe them in one word as as um, formidable. I guess would be my my one word. Formidable. Summary. I remember That's once going off for a meeting with them. Well, I, I see. I see if it, see if it resonates in terms of the. I've got two stories to tell you about them, um, and actually, it was one of those things where had we agreed on this at the start a little bit like your mm. conversations with your, your team members, I would have been totally fine with it. But my, a couple of interactions I had with them in, in the early stages of our relationship just completely threw me off and, and kind of gave me a bit of a, probably the wrong perception of them. So the first one was okay. when we were, we were meeting up for the first time in person to, to agree the terms of a big contract. And because it was um, defense industry, it was all about you had to meet them at the gate and then you were escorted to a big oh, building. And, yeah, and the yeah. escort probably took about, I don't know, maybe five or 10 minutes walk. And at which point I, I was, my expectations were, we'll have a little chat about the journey on the walk. We'll talk about the weather, usual British mm. stuff. Um, I'll ask about the family, you know, we'll maybe have a hot drink and then sit down and we'll get into the business of what, what, what we were there to discuss. And rather than that happening, in in the kind of five minute walk over to the building that we we took, we did the entire deal. She, wow! Like she launched straight into the okay. So this is what I think we, we we're getting we're getting done. How much is it going to cost me? What the time scale is going to be? And I, I was so thrown by it. But I, I, you know, I was, I was prepared for that conversation. I just wasn't prepared for it to happen then. Then, yeah. Um, so we had all of that discussion. We did the deal. We then sat down, had a cup of tea, talked about the journey and the weather, and. Um, I was on my way within about with easily less than kind of 40 minutes. Um, we went into a bit more detail, but in terms of the, the order and the sequence of, of what, what is quite an established conversation pattern, mm. it just, it just didn't go that way. The same person I used to um, frequently have to kind of chase up via email. And um, I, I just never heard from them. They just used to ghost me all the time on email. And I thought, listen, either I'm doing something wrong here or they just don't like me or they don't want to hear from me, in which mm-hmm. case I probably need to find out more. So I ended up asking one of their colleagues about this. And the colleague just said, actually, don't worry about it. If there isn't an action point in the first two lines of the email, they just delete it. And what, of course, I was doing was I was writing all my emails in quite a fluffy, I thought, quite considerate, polite way yep. where I'd, I'd, you know, there'd be the usual usual rehearsed stuff around yeah how are you doing hope this finds you well how was your holiday you know etc etc and then get into the kind of 
the the meat of the message mm-hmm. but actually they didn't care they just wanted to know what needed to happen and if there wasn't a, an, a very obvious labeled action for them in the first two lines it just either was ignored or deleted or both once i learned that about their authentic behavior which they brought to every interaction not just not just with me yeah it, it made it really easy for us to get on and and have a really good working relationship but um it was completely under the radar so i, I had to kind of I had to feel my way around it with with guesswork and and lots of questions, <laughs> um, yeah. rather than being being more overt about mm. about what was what was going on there and what they needed in that in that space. I should add, I you know that that analogy you used of kind of, sort of bending over backwards in order to accommodate someone else's behaviour. I was definitely in that space there because that wasn't that was very alien to me and mm. um, not something I'm really really used to based on some of the other people. I was used to working with and collaborating with, but it got the job done and it was very efficient. I can't, yeah. I can't knock it for that. And, and if I bring us back. And that's where kind of formidable almost... came from. Oh yeah. Okay. I get it. No, I get it. Um, and, and if I bring us back almost full circle to, to the beginning of the episode, when, um, or beginning of this conversation, when Alison asked me, what do you need? You know, how do you want me to lead you? And I told her, she's like, Phil, I can't accommodate that. No, that's not, no, sorry. That's not true. So it was two weeks after we'd had that conversation. She said, Phil, I can't accommodate what you need. Because what I asked for was weekly check-ins. I was like, I want to check in at the end of each week. Um, So two o'clock on a Friday um, where we can talk about what I've done, how I've done and so on. Um, And so at the end of week one, so at the end of week three, uh, we finished, we've kind of got to the end of me doing my thing. She said, Phil, I can't sustain this. Uh, You've got my attention for two and a half hours, if not three hours every Friday. I, I can't do that. I've got other stuff to do. I've got other work to do. I've got other things that I need to do. I appreciate this is what you need and I appreciate this is what you want. Um, but when you said a weekly check and I was thinking like half an hour, maybe an hour, but actually you want, you want, mm-hmm. you know, two, two and a half, three hours of my time. And, and I just can't meet that need. So can we change it? You know, can we, can we do something different? So, um, and it's the same is true now when a member this guy who edits my podcast, a guy called Simon, when I asked him that question, he said to me, I only want you to tell me when I do things poorly. I don't want you to tell me when I do things well, because I really want to improve and I want to be better. And I said, I'm not willing to do that, Simon. That's just not something I'm willing to do. I'm willing to tell you where you need to improve. You know, no matter how small the the detail, I'm willing to tell you that. And I will also tell you where you do things well, because I'm, I'm not willing to to only tell you where you need to be better. Um, if we want to, if we're going to do this, then I need to tell you when you do things well as well. Um, so it. It's, it is that classic kind of, oh, I say classic, it, it's that contracting piece. So just because someone says they want something, you don't have to agree to it. It's, it's about trying to find a yeah. way that that explicitly and overtly between the two of you where you agree what it is. So if somebody wants, in, in my example, two and a half, three hours of your time every Friday and you can't do that, then they say, well, what, what could you get away with then? So is it is it that length of time every other week? Or is it a shorter time every mm. week? Um, you know, or, or you need to do more work beforehand, Phil. I need you to come prepared, better prepared to it, so that we're not you're not outlining the situation to me in a you know long roundabout waffly way like you can do. I want you to be more succinct and more to the point, and give me the question that you want. You know, so there's different ways that you can then go about it to to give what it is. So, 
when you ask the question, I suppose it could come across like you have to give somebody what they everything that they're asking for, and it's not about that. It's you know you can if you can't if you can't deliver on that expectation, then say I can't deliver and re-agree whatever it would be. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I, when you when you told that story, I was thinking about someone I met recently who told me that they have 70 people that report to them. I was thinking about how yeah, how would that work for some you know trying to trying to contract that way with 70 people, but of course it's about boundaries and expectations mm. and and being really clear about them and redefining them if they need to be yeah yeah absolutely. thank you welcome that's probably a really good point for us to start to wrap up I, I wanted to say a huge thank you phil for everything you've shared um, there's some really lovely practical actionable tips um using your emotion at work wizardry there that i know oh, people will, will enjoy following um now if people want to find out a bit more about what you do and who you work with and how you help them, how can they find you? Um, so uh, go to the website, which is emotionatwork.co.uk. Um, uh, if you're interested, I guess, in um, maybe a bit more about how we constructively harness emotions in the people, processes and place of work, you could join the community so that you can find that at community dot emotion at work dot co dot uk and i'll mark i'll give you a link so you can put it into the um into the show notes as well um but ultimately for us we we're about i don't know like restoring and revitalizing environments whether they be workplaces or teams where people can feel safe they can feel optimistic and they can feel confident mm. right you know what what it, what it is that's coming and, and what it is that's ahead um so yeah, and the, and you can mm. find me on LinkedIn as well. So Phil Wilcox on LinkedIn, Wilcox with two L's. Um, and then you can also email me on phil at emotionatwork.co.uk. So lots of options for you. Lots of options indeed. Thank you again for joining us, Phil. And we'll see you next time on the podcast. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. Meanwhile, if you're interested to learn more about how the PCS approach can help you explore leadership, performance, and culture within your business, get in touch with our team at performanceclimatesystem.com and we'll be happy to help. See you next time with another great guest.